Hey, this is Harpo the Healer. Welcome to the Harping with Harpo series. This is the 28th podcast. These podcasts are a supplement to Harpo the Healer on YouTube. Don't forget, have a look at all other episodes. You will note some are loosely based around blues and blues harmonica. However, we're not rooted and explore many interesting avenues, covering some famous unsolved mysteries and in-depth analysis, while if not on a musical area of interest, cover some great feats of human endeavour and dig into the human condition. Today I'm a solo talking head and I'm going to look at why living in the moment is crucial, not only to the improvising musician, but to all the arts and life in general. I'm also going to touch on the world we live in today and how technology has impacted on our everyday living, where living in the moment is fast diminishing for many. I'm also going to profile Joe Bonamassa, the uh, blues guitar and uh, vocalist. Uh, he does other things as well, uh, blues rock and a number of other things, but uh, mainly I think as a blues artist. So I'd like to talk about him, so his origins and how he became uh, what he became. The podcasts are free and if you feel it, uh, it was anyway beneficial, Hop Other Healer YouTube has a link on there for you to help support the channel and help drive us forward. So today I'm uh, going to reflect, ponder, contemplate. Contemplation, that's better still, isn't it? It's not only a great jazz tune, contemplation, that I've played as a saxophonist, uh, as a jazz saxophonist many times as the years have gone by, but uh, uh, yep, today, contemplation. We're going to look at elements of uh, the human condition and the question to ask is, what have the cigarette smoker the elite athlete, excuse me, elite athlete, the jazz musician, a good blues player, a sculptor, a painter, a writer, a top class professional sportsman, women or whatever, what have they got in common? I'll let you think about that for a few seconds. And yes, you heard it right, uh, I'm including the cigarette smoker in that. By the way, I'm not advocating smoking, although um, as long as it's not inflicted on me, they can set themselves on fire, for all I care. Well. It's not health, is it? Obviously not. Uh, however, success, hmm, possibly. Any ideas? Okay, here's my answer. They all live in the moment. Now, just let that sink in for a few seconds. The most talented people in whatever they do have the ability to live in the moment. And that is what gives them the edge over others who can't basically hit the mark. So where does the uh, cigarette smoker feature in all this, I hear you crying into my ears. Well, when the cigarette smokers smoking the cigarette, they are in that moment, they're thinking in that moment. They don't contemplate or think about the cigarettes they have smoked, or they're going to smoke. They don't think about a time after they're doing something. They're at the point that they're philosophizing or thinking um, you know, you, you see uh, car mechanics who are going to one side and smoking a cigarette and studying the, the handiwork and then going back to it, that kind of thing. They're living in the moment and some people think that it gives them time to think. Of course, it doesn't really. It's just a process. They could actually uh, do that process without smoking the cigarette if they thought about it. But of course, it's a, it's a habit with nicotine and smoke and all the rest of it. And that's up to them. But the point is that at the point they're smoking the cigarette, they're in the moment. Just like many professional footballers you'll hear, once they've played the game of football, they'll think about their mistakes and they'll think how to rectify those mistakes. That's what will feature in their mind for the rest of the week. They really don't want to go back and watch themselves on any screen. 
they want to be thinking about the next game always the next game and then working in a training session and working in the moment and playing in the moment and that for a musician is also the key remember success means different things to different people the problem to me with the uh, current western society is much of uh, someone's success is geared by how much money they have made which is extremely shallow way of looking at it of course of looking at the world however nonetheless it is the world that um, all of us live in or most of us live in anyway not ideal however it seems to be the best there is at present moment in time and extremely unlikely to change soon or perhaps forever there's a, a great saying I can't remember who said it originally came up with it but I'll paraphrase here is how miserable uh, materialistic people seem to become in old age more and more people are moving in general away from living in the moment or if they ever did we all see it now for example you know you got your, your Wimbledon final and the guy's two sets down and he's, he's serving to try and save himself it might be a match in which this guy's going to win at the moment he's about to serve you look around the, uh, the ground and uh, everybody's there with cameras they're, they're using their phones to record it so at that moment in time these people aren't really in the moment they're not actually soaking in all the atmosphere at that point there might be a, a brush of dust off the ground or something that he does or a breath or something that you see that you can absorb in with him and feel the tension but it won't all be there you won't all be exactly there because you're creating this parallel world at the same time because you've got your phone out so you can't be in that moment you're more interested in recording it for posterity and to show others of an experience that you were there which is really bizarre because somewhere like a Wimbledon final or the US Open or whatever there are cameras everywhere it's professionally uh, done there's absolutely no need for you to um, to film it other than to uh, send it to friends and say look I was there which seems um, ludicrous to me but hey this is the the situation that the world finds itself in nowadays of course if we take it from the standpoint of looking at um, health and well-being it's uh, often said that you know if, if people can live in the present uh, that is the uh, the best place to be all round yes it's important to look forward into the future and prepare to a certain degree and of course uh, but uh, you know to try and live in that present and also to look back not just for posterity but from a learning perspective looking back into history and um, of things that have been done well to concentrate on being in the present is um, I think the most rewarding and satisfying thing you come across people who've never really been in the zone they uh, they may well have been in, 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 in their life in some things but don't actually recognize it good artists will recognize it all the time because that's the mode they have to be in in order to perform at their very very high level if you check through uh, some of my other podcasts I don't know which one it is but it's one I've done with RJ where I discuss um, how to get into the zone and uh, ways of uh, and then fulfillment and how it how you develop and what it's like to have that out-of-body experience so that's how it appears to me people um, feel it differently when you're on a bandstand as I was as a jazz saxophonist where wow you're locked right in with the band and then all night I can float out of myself and uh, actually look at myself playing as if it's not me um, but that's on another podcast I don't really want to uh, 
duplicate what I've already said before. You know, this this living in the present is is, is so so important if you want to be successful at anything. So it's uh, really all about paying attention. A little bit white, um, if you're able to see. I've had several um, eye operations in my life. Fortunately, they were uh, successful. When you have the ability to see, you know, pay attention if you can see. You might use your other senses if you can't see, and they will uh, be more heightened, obviously, if you haven't got visibility. But if you've got visibility, pay attention. That's extremely important. And now the ancient Egyptians, they were absolutely uh, fundamental here way 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 ahead of the time and of course with the ancient Egyptians you know some of the things that they come up with it's hard to believe that people were thinking like that that far back in history you know it's about uh, telling stories in just about everything and one thing that the ancient Egyptians were absolutely really clever at doing was um, taking their myths and legends and uh, putting them together with facts a little bit like uh, listening to or reading historical fiction, good quality fiction, but uh, even better the ancient Egyptians, they were fantastic at it. And the eye was a, a symbol. The eye of Horus, for example, was used as a sign of prosperity and protection, derived from the myths of Isis and Osiris. And so, they, you know, you've got to think that they were absolutely telling you back then some of their atomical things with the anatomy and what they came up with for the period of time they were in, some of the uh, people today are still using some of those processes. Of course, things have changed a thousandfold, of course, but they're still using some things that the ancient Egyptians came up with, and it's, uh, it's quite remarkable. So one of their big things is, is the eye, and what it's saying to me as a symbol is saying, you know, pay attention. And the only way, the way to do that really successfully is to focus down and be in the moment. I'm not kind of talking about material, looking at material things here. As I said before, that kind of is a sort of a shallow approach. But in terms of artistry, of, of being the, the sculptor, the painter, the writer, the musician, the improvising musician, you know, all these things. So um, it's kind of crucial, really. And you can learn to do this very early on. It's not something that, um, that uh, you know, if you don't learn it early, you can't do it. But it's the difference between people being uh, very, very high achievers uh, and somebody being kind of really mediocre, I guess. People who don't have enough order in their life tend to get overwhelmed. This is the first problem, really. Uh, let me give you an example of sheepdog training, because uh, you know, dogs have a lot of similarities to us in the way in the, the behaviour, don't they? And, um, you know, I, I grew up next to a farm uh, with, uh, with sheepdogs. I watched all the sheepdog uh, training and things like that over the years as a kid and of course you know there's that anxiety in the dog but the first thing that the the dog needs to do is to bind the sheep together moving from side to side at the back it sort of sees these grey white fluffy things and if it sees gaps in the middle it wants to bind them together it feels correct and, and order and cohesive to do that before and then to drive the uh, then the next event is to drive the thing forward it's kind of an order thing that uh, that happens with the, with the sheepdog. So you know, without order, well, then in your mind, then you haven't really got purpose. You have to have purpose. You can obviously deduce that without purpose, um, it's going to send you down a road of dysfunction, isn't it? And um, that's pretty damn obvious. And again, um, I've discussed this before with RJ and other pods. You'll have to podcast. You'll have to kind of look those up. I don't want to 
kind of duplicate, as I said, things I've done before. So you could say, if, uh, if things are not going too well, you could say, can you imagine if someone like God or whoever you believe in or the atheist or you're thinking yourself or whatever, somebody, something says or tells you in your mind, how would you like to live forever? Well, you know, I know what most artists and musicians and um, people like that would say and, and I would say it myself, well, no I wouldn't. Um, and for pretty plain reasons, if you're, if, you're, if you're an artistic bent, it's pretty obvious. But perhaps the material people would. They would want to live forever. But the thing is, you see, uh, the problem is uh, they kind of miss the whole point in that situation because uh, if, you would, if you could live forever, then you would have no purpose. There wouldn't be a purpose to anything. You have to be born, you have to live, and you have to die. That is the cycle. And in order to give your life meaning and purpose, yeah, you, you have to uh, pass over at the end of it. And I'm saying that in a, a quite um, enthusiastic way. I don't see that as a, um, as a, as a depressive thing. It's, uh, it's how, how life is. It is part of life. And you get so many people who um, I've come across over the years who think very strange ways and mainly because these particular type of people are completely materialistic. You don't tend to find that with the artists and musicians or the ones I've uh, spent my time with anyway. So as I've said before, no matter how abstract you want to be, you have to have some order and some uh, rails to run on in order to become abstract and I've talked about that before as well. But just about all the uh, positive motion, the forward drive of your life, uh, your forward motion will not be from, um, from material possessions. It would be perhaps if you were making them and you were sculpturing them or you were building them, that's a different thing, but just going out and buying them and then because the satisfaction once it's bought and it's shown a few people, you have to go out and buy other things. There's a scientific name for it, I can't remember what that is, but it, um, as I said, very, very shallow thinking. But all your forward motion, no, it'll be from um, it'll be from things that you're doing that are edging forward and setting very small goals and other goals that you're actually doing, that things that you actually love and value. That will be where the um, all your forward motion comes from, and that's the reason I think people should embrace the arts, even to the extent of reading historical novels or um, you know, taking up music instruments, sculpture, painting, books, exploring, all these things. That's where the greatest riches, um, in my view, are. And, um, and what better uh, way than to take up, say, the harmonica at any age, or any musical instrument? There should be no barrier. If you haven't got these kind of things in your life at present, artists and musicians, they tend to be the most contented a lot of the times simply because they're getting these uh, endorphins in the body every single day of their life when they're learning. They're learning, they're expanding, learning, expanding, and it's a continual journey that never ends. And that's one of the reasons why uh, they tend to be the most um, contented, I guess. It's a great reason to take up something like a musical instrument, isn't it? At any age, as I've said. Um, but you have to enjoy each moment and enjoy the journey. The, the crucial thing is to enjoy this never-ending journey and to engage. So you have to commit to engage. Do that and it'll be one of the most rewarding things you ever do. If you're not uh, pick music, one of the other arts, it doesn't really matter. But that is the thing that um, 
a lot of people miss throughout their life. I've come across a lot of people with a huge void in their life. But this is one of the reasons why the arts are so uh, fantastic. Now this is a good point to change tack and talk about blues artists and I guess blues rock artist, although I view him as a blues artist, Joe Bonamassa. Now, when you're going to learn a genre of your chosen music, people go about things in various ways in order to keep themselves amused, and that's how I like to look at it anyway. Uh, Bluesman Smoking Joe Bonamassa, as he was referred to in his uh, youth, started his musical journey early, very early indeed, in fact uh, five years old. And his dad was uh, into guitar, I believe he had a shop at one time, I think, and guitars, and, um, and got his son a guitar at the tender age, but um, he also got it one with a shortened neck, either half size or three quarter size, I'm not sure which, but anyway, it was so that, you know, when he was showing him how to do a bar chord at such a tender age, he could, uh, he could actually do it. Anyway, he embarked on his journey showing Joe things uh, on the electric and introduced him to uh, record CDs or wherever it was of the likes of Eric Clapton and SRV, that's uh, Stevie Ray Vaughan, many others but I think those were a couple that he uh, was sort of uh, feeding him and uh, off they went. Obviously many more blues artists as well but um, that was just an example. So his dad shows him a few things and uh, amazingly one day his dad comes home and he goes into his room, I don't know, five, six or seven years, and I'm not sure. Somebody said it might even be when he was five, but it was within one of those, uh, one of those couple of years anyway. His dad witnessed almost nailing down, he went in the room and he was almost nailing down Stevie Ray Vaughan's uh, scuttle bottle. Now I was thinking it's probably the introduction bit, but it uh, sounds more like uh, when I've uh, had a listen to the documentaries that it was, uh, he was doing a whole chunk of it, which is uh, it's quite incredible, isn't it? So his dad was, uh, was actually floored at first, he couldn't quite believe it. Mind-blowing, some might say. Uh, well, you see, you know, Joe was, uh, was a kind of protégé. And it, it comes to no real surprise to me, though, that it's possible. My uh, youngest daughter, for example, all grown up now, but uh, I introduced her to uh, music as early as two, three years old. And uh, I was a, very much a gigging musician back in the day. And so uh, I had the kids at home. And so uh, there's certain ways that you can go about things, isn't there? For example, um, I introduced her to music and I had her and she, I showed her three chords on a ukulele at the age of three. And uh, it wasn't long before she was coming up to me and showing me her own tune that she'd put together. Which was quite amazing, three and a half years old. Now these days my, uh, my youngest is on a different uh, artistical journey and that's great uh, somewhere in different directions but of course it's um, it's so important when you've got kids at that that age they're so impressionable so it's not uh, a surprise to me with uh, that um, the skills that uh, Joe Bonamassa was uh, was uh, accruing and getting together at such a young age I mean I was playing uh, modern jazz as a tenor sax player probably two or three nights a week I might be playing more commercially on Friday, Saturday night, uh, you know, your soul band, all that sort of kind of stuff maybe, but um, Sunday lunch is probably jazz in those days. When you find yourself, you know, you, if you want the freedom to, to work out on your instruments at home and you've got little ones, then, you know, if you, for example, play with your child for 20 or 30 minutes and then the child will then probably play with those particular toys for 30 to 40 minutes on their own after you've finished. So that gives you 40 minutes. 
and then you might find another direction and do another uh, fun thing with them and then you watch them keep an eye on them but then they'll probably play with that for 40 50 minutes give you another hour so there's another couple of hours for you to free up to uh, to do your stuff on your instruments or whatever you need to do and it always grates on me with with children when they say oh I'm gonna home educate the kids well home educating is okay to a point but they have to be able to function in society and by that that means socializing I mean when I was a kid in school they had nothing in the playground nothing they threw the kids in they'd let some kids have a tennis ball to play soccer with but they wouldn't let you have a big ball you know when I'm talking about the between the ages of say five and, uh, and ten you know that kind of age so you're left with not a lot and you've got to use your imagination I guess that's what they're looking for but it's also about integration because you might want to be isolated you might want to get down and do your thing but in order to function in society you have to be able to uh, to deal with uh, and be and understand other people so the point is that you learn the most from playing that's how you learn not, not just as in playing a musical instrument but generally playing that's how we all learn the most you know I've studied martial arts for many many years and in the early days I mean back in the day in in the Far East they were looking at animals and how animals behavior and even in their world you know it's, it's play and experimentation that that uh, that's how you that's how you learn and so basically is with Joe Bonamassa's uh, the, the, the prodigy idea is basically it's down to good parenting that's what it is it's excellent parenting you know as I said earlier you know if a kid's bored when a kid's brain is like a sponge if it's bored then that's where it's going to start short-circuiting isn't it and that's where uh, as the brain gets rewired over the first uh, sort of 16 years of its life if it, ha it comes across of the ultimate boredom and literally doesn't have a direction and doesn't know what to do this is when all these uh, strange problems and strange behaviors appear or many of them at least so as I said Joe started uh, life out as a musician I, I said five but I think uh, in truth it might have well have been four or four to five uh, but uh, it says on Wikipedia four so okay we'll go with that um, he was from uh, a place called New Hartford in New York his early influences were they were all being fed in by his father like the Eric Clapton Jeff Beck that kind of blues and British blues and kind of kind of bluesy rock rock music is not something that I'm very keen on that's why I see Joe as a as a blues player but anyway by the time he's 12 he's a force to be reckoned with he was being mentored by uh, an American guitar legend called Danny Gatton. I think he was a session player and very, very well known. And he sort of um, molded things together for him. I mean, I remember many years ago, I had a, I took the youngest uh, saxophone student I ever had. I think he was eight. And I took him because he wanted to do it. And it wasn't from his parents. He'd, he'd seen something and, and it was him that pestered his parents. I said, okay, I'll, I'll take him and I finished with him when he was about 16 or 17 or something like that and he had all the attributes to be a, a very fine uh, bebop player when I'd got him up uh, to standards and stuff but uh, he went down a funky route and then he changed direction and went into music technology but uh, uh, you know these things are possible to to push and, and do well early if you uh, if you really uh, focus your attentions so uh, in, in Joe's case he's now would you believe he, uh, the big thing for him was that he opened for B.B. King and I think he, 
he BB uh, King let him open on something like 20 shows whether it was in the holidays or wherever or whatever he was doing but at that tender age he was uh, he opened for BB King and I guess that gave him a a huge uh, lift and he uh, it had his own band then as well he was uh, playing around a certain uh, Pennsylvania and New York uh, when he was 12 and then he joined a, a band called Bloodline or they they got him involved in the band with with uh, these these characters were all sort of uh, the sons of Miles Davis and um, people from the Almond Brothers and, and uh, is it the Doors I think I don't know but they they were all um, sons of um, of famous sort of rock and jazz bands and uh, and Joe was really I think the younger one who was in there basically for his, his solo uh, space and his, his composition that's that, that sort of stuff and so uh, that's quite amazing and that's that's how he sort of uh, he went about his business at that particular time. Now, as I said earlier, the thing that's uh, unique, I think, with uh, Joe Bonamassa is at such a young age he had that feel, real feel, not just a feel within the music, it's bigger than that. And as I said, I thought it was he was soaking that off the records, absolutely engrossing that aspect of it, which hugely early. I mean, you get a lot of musicians never ever get true feel. You, you can count them on one hand, you get, you know, you have to get that feel into your playing, whichever instrument you're into, if you're an improvising musician for sure, you really have to dig deep. Now I remember listening to sort of Joe's early stuff and uh, at first I kind of, I'm hearing everybody else really than him and I think he probably would have admitted that himself. It's still him going through it and, and moving things around in his way, but obviously then he's trying to find himself through it all. But um, he really does um, have a tremendous feel, um, which he's, uh, he's kept that going throughout the whole of his career and just got bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. And that is the, uh, that's a good testimony for a good blues artist. A blues artist that can make a statement, it doesn't have to make a statement with very much, but he can get the same power as a good jazz bop player can get the power in different ways. And this is one of the reasons why I've never been keen on the, on, on the, on the rocky side. It's to do with rhythms, it's just a personal thing and, and, and I see it as a blues being a, an expression at the ultimate level. And he has that. Joe Bonamassa has that, uh, the talent to do that and get it at that level. I don't think I've seen Joe ever do a blues gig with a harmonica player like yours truly. Well, we can but dream. Anyway, if you've never come across Joe Bonamassa, and I think it's culminating, he was doing it, uh, he does different tours with different types of gigs at various times. But going back, you can see, you'll get it on the tube, is live at the Greek Theatre with, uh, with his full band and uh, the Albert Hall, but the Greek Theatre in, in, uh, in America. I think it's on the West Coast, yeah it is. It's LA or something like that. And uh, have a look at that. I'll play the blues for you, some Albert King numbers, just Freddie King numbers. It's called the Three Kings Tour, I think. And he does BB King, and if you look at those, in no uncertain terms, he, he really, really pulls it off there. He uh, really pushes the boat out, and if you don't believe that he can give it to you, well man, he gives it to you, for sure. And there's an icing on the cake, this guy has got a voice, and he's got, um, I mean when I do blues, I'm graveling, <coughs> I'm uh, doing the growl and all that sort of stuff, that's how I get around it, but in his case, this guy can sing, 
and he can sing extremely well with a blues voice which is extremely difficult to do because blues is uh, it's either uh, telling poetry or talking or, or the way I've just described how I would do it but he sings but he's a blues singer he's excellent and he's uh, has an absolute excellent band that he put together there with I think some of the Tower Power Boys the uh, great horn section from that from that band um, elements of that and then um, some fantastic backing singers um, and I think he's got Reese. I can't remember his last name used to be with Stevie Ray Vaughan on uh, keys on piano and Hammonds on B3s and stuff and uh, I can't remember the rest of the band but it's it's well worth a look because you will see how his delivery is sublime and it's the, it's the delivery sometimes it's not so much the notation it's the delivery the delivery of the notation the dynamics and the attention to detail within the dynamical movement that makes somebody in my view a good player and uh, I don't think it's any accident that uh, he was well um, he's been put in certain bands on the way up but like a lot of these things there's, there's you know there's very good fine players never get plucked from obscurity as we know throughout the world and and um, in terms of when I was a jazz player as a jazz saxophonist I can look at blues for example and like a lot of jazz players would do and see it as fairly simple whereas um, in, in the jazz world of course as a blues harmonica player um, I look at it different because it's a different set of parameters and when I used to play saxophone on gigs I remember doing the whole of uh, the other coast line for a while for a, few, a couple of years with a blues band when I wasn't playing jazz and um, having to play the saxophone in a very different way uh, some people say very simplistic but no there's other things that you bring on board but um, but in, in Joe's case here you can see that um, as I said there's, there's lots of uh, very very fine players everywhere of course but only a few get uh, any form of uh, success or uh, well, particularly financially although you know perhaps you shouldn't be judging people by financial success but it, success nonetheless and, and that's down to good management uh, I think there's several documentaries where he, he touches on this he's had very fine management all the way through and and it's very impressive to see somebody who has uh, made it with his name uh, to a certain point um, without uh, really no mainstream playing on radio stations um, which is quite a thing you know and um, people see him as a blues rock player as a blues player whatever uh, some people see him as more progressive um, I see him as a blues player and a very very fine one and a great blues singer as well and so if you haven't checked him out go check him out Joe Bonamassa fantastic and here's a note look up on YouTube BB King with Pavarotti yes you heard me right, B.B. King with Pavarotti. It is absolutely mind-blowing. They do, the thrill is gone, the two of them. And uh, Pavarotti uses his voice as an instrument over, and B.B. Uh, does it behind, in front of his or uh, Pavarotti's orchestra, and they do, uh, the thrill is gone. And it is absolutely incredible. Two people from completely different worlds coming together and it's a it's a beautiful beautiful moment in uh, in in musicality and in humanity it's a beautiful moment for humanity and at the end of it you see bb king he stands up and uh, he bows to the great man and pavarotti puts a hand on his cheek all smiles it's a beautiful beautiful moment and um, if that isn't uh, 
bring you to perhaps think of peace in the world. I don't know what does. Uh, in front of the front is outside in front of a massive, massive audience. But uh, go and check that out because it is really, really is something special. BB for all his humble origins and all the rest of it. You know um, that there's no black and white thing with him. You know, and for me, BB's going with that story all his life. We're all the same. The humbleness shown by BB in that moment, and yet both men hugely respect each other. Simply beautiful. So as I'm sort of closing and winding down on this particular podcast, who knows, you know, uh, 50, 100 years time, somebody might be listening to a Harpo the Healer podcast long after I've departed. And um, I don't know, maybe for posterity, just to mention that we're now in, what, the closing out uh, the last week, week and a half of February 2023. And uh, we're in a situation with this kind of woke society now where we've got like uh, classic children's books like Roald Dahl, you know, fantastic uh, author, children's author. And we're in a situation where these things are going to be revised now and that um, using words like ugly, we're not allowed to use this word anymore. And they're going to start changing certain words that he was using for his descriptive uh, narrative. And uh, yeah, it's absolutely ridiculous. Um, you know, um, I mean, children in their everyday lives will go around um, hearing off their, most of them, off their own parents' uh, worse things than they're going to see in a children's book like a Roald Dahl book. And, uh, you know, his impact is, is the way it is. Now, the interesting thing about all this is do we decide what is a classic book and what is a book? Now let me explain. So if we say that, for example, Roald Dahl's children's books are classics, then it's for us, the reader, to adjust to the classic, not the classic to adjust to us. Normal books, for example, will fade into insignificance, whereas classics, uh, they stay the test of time. And because they're classics, the wording has to be of the day, and, and it shouldn't really be changed. And I've turned on to this particular point from the historian Dr. David Starsky recently who was uh, online uh, discussing and more or less saying th th this kind of thing that um, that's what you know because as a classic it is an object out there for people to uh, make a judgment of. Um, if, it, if it's just a consumer book, a, a book that you buy and then discard, it's kind of it's a different thing to a classic and that's where you have to uh, put things in, into perspective. At the moment, the, uh, the woke society is, is getting absolutely ridiculous. I mean, interestingly enough, um, uh, sometimes there's some people online, they do these like reaction channels, don't they? And I saw, an, I think it was an American lady maybe, uh, or watching um, The Life of Brian. We've probably all seen it, haven't we? There's a scene in the Coliseum where Reg and Stan and the rest of the little uh, party like a trade union lot sat there discussing um, their uh, people's popular front or whatever they call it very very funny where Stan decides that he wants to become a woman and all the rest of it it's a very very funny scene made what probably early 1970s which is almost mirroring what's happening today you know Monty Python hugely advanced uh, and uh, way way ahead of its time wasn't it incredible that particular two and a half minute scene where they just sat there discussing um, could Stan change and be a woman and what's the point if it's just a sit or is it just a symbolic thing it's a very very funny thing the point is now that if you use that same uh, language and, and joked around now 
Would it be banned? Would they stop it? Because we're getting to this stage now. So here we are in the sort of last sort of February, you know, we're into this this time. We're now we're now thinking about um, changing wording in, in, in fantastic children's books. So, you know, music is a language and the way that uh, you aggressively play or you uh, you pull back on your dynamic or you um, you lift and, and, and shade the work as you're telling your story and telling a different story every time. Uh, I think, is it going to come to a stage where people aren't allowed to uh, produce certain bodies of work? I mean, is it, are we getting to a stage where you're listening to a symphony orchestra or, you know, Beethoven's ninth or fifth probably more, um, more uh, known than the ninth. Uh, uh, the ninth is, um, uh, I prefer the ninth, but you know, you've got, um, or, or the fantastic Bach or, or any jazz or any, any music, rock music, whatever you like, you know, should they have to then curb the way that they approach how they play their own expression because um, because again it is a language isn't it it's amazing in everyday words that we've become more liberal in saying things like the F word in the C word that actually comes into mainstream television into into period dramas that uh, 20 30 40 years ago wouldn't dream of doing and yet there's other things like uh, Roald Dahl's children's books where they're thinking of taking these odd words out for children which um, seems bizarre in the world that they are actually living in today. You know, in Roald Dahl books, he was, uh, I think it was his grandmother or grandfather or something in Norway when he was a boy that he got all these stories from. And I know from trips to Norway that I've done over the years that, uh, you know, uh, they had um, large trolls always appeared in Norway in, in children's books. But there, there are reasons for these things, you know. They're not, it's not just uh, children's storytelling. They're, there's sometimes significance. You know, large trolls can appear at the edge of mountains to prevent... Um, yes, they can be menacing things, but can prevent or teach children not to fall off the edge of crevices or where there's huge, huge drops. You know, they get used to this at a very early age because of the terrain that a lot of them find themselves in. You know, I mean, look at um, a Little Red Riding Hood. You know, there's a, a typical story that the wolf um, is basically trying to teach a child that just because somebody looks, uh, might be dressed sartorially and speaks a certain way, that uh, they might not be what they appear to be. And um, that is a very, very significant, you know. Um, and the, the stories, and, and they're classic stories, aren't they? Um, now, will it be starting to change the language or perhaps changing the wolf that's in the, in the bed dressed up as grandma? I mean, this is, how it, this is how it seems to be going and how bizarre that is, you know? I mean, surely, as far as children are concerned, I mean, you know, censoring? I mean, come on. Maybe they should start with video games? A lot of revenue and business in that. I mean, it's just uh, ridiculous to... Uh, to sort of start censoring uh, books like uh, Roald Dahl's classic children's books. The Hunchback of Notre Dame, what's that going to become? The gentle person in the bell tower with a bad back? Something like that? Or perhaps we can't use the word bad and I've changed gentleman to gentle person and uh, perhaps the word bad and gentleman will have to be banned and um, we'd have to think of come up with something else and something else. I mean it's absolutely ludicrous. AI, for example, artificial intelligence. I mean, how far will mankind push it and how far will mankind uh, let it get to? I mean, that's a 
huge discussion all by itself. I mean, imagine if mankind decides to start censoring or um, controlling self-expression uh, and taking our music as the improviser. I mean, can you imagine it? That would be incredible, wouldn't it? Or to um, manipulate the uh, the sculptor or the artist, manipulating the writer as, well, we're seeing that now, aren't we? You know, uh, to a degree, I think. Um, all these things and to um, to control or get, uh, certain elements of control of self-expression. You know, what do the scientists do? They look back at, uh, you know, how the apes developed and how we came out of the trees and how evolution came and looking at Nathaniel man and primitive man and all the rest of it. And when they're looking for marks of intelligence, whether it's a chimpanzee or whatever, if they come across, or primitive man, if they come across something where the action is done not simply to get food or for foraging, not simply for survival, but it's done for other reasons, either to quell boredom or whether it's to, um, you know, like cave paintings or just doing something for amusement. Um, this is where the arts come in. That's when they realize that uh, um, the species is changing because that is a huge, huge mark of intelligence. So for me, I'm interested in the human condition, individualism and uh, self-expression. And uh, that's uh, where it's at for me. Okay, so that's Harper the Healer. I'm signing off. I'll blow out some blues for you on the blues harp. Check out my other podcasts. Check out Harper the Healer on YouTube. And you know what? I'll catch you on the rebound.